And what is more important at that point? Is it more important to have that glamorous truck or is it more important to have an income to be stable when things are slow in January, February, and March that you can continue to push forward? We're back this week with East Coast Transport, Vice President of the Logistics and longtime broker, former owner-operator back in the day, Mr. Paul Berman. His voice you'll recognize from part one of this two-parter aired last week. This is the Overdrive Radio Podcast. I'm Todd Dills, and there's a lot we can glean from Berman's perspective. If you missed the previous part, find it in your podcast player's feed or via overdriveonline.com slash channel 19, the blog post that uh, houses it is dated May 29th. But in this second part of the talk, Berman offers a variety of specific tactical and strategic advice for owner-operators running independently, having to do with their efforts uh, with brokers, and he weighs in on the conversations around transparency and to shippers' rates on brokers lo- broker loads that so many owner-operators have been talking about since the pandemic drove offer rates to the floor. But the first part of the conversation revealed his view of a particular aspect of vetting a broker that's interesting in a few different ways. There are a plethora of, of services for broker credit checking and the like. We certainly covered them. But professional associations, too, ought to be considered, he believes. Now, the one thing I, w- I, I would tell you is owner-operators would also serve themselves well. There's about 20,000 brokers, active brokers in the United States that are considered truck brokers, which means they have property broker authority, and they're bonded. As opposed to a dispatch service, which has nothing but a telephone. So a a properly bonded uh, broker that has authority, that is a member of an organization called the Transportation Intermediaries Association, they're much better off dealing with one of those members, uh, which is also referred to as TIA. They have about right. 1,800 members. And they have a code of ethics that every member is responsible to meet or exceed that standard. Since 1978, goes an item about the code of ethics on the TIA website, quote, TIA has made adherence to the TIA Code of Ethics a mandatory requirement for membership. The organization has an ethics committee tasked with reviewing complaints against members. What's in the Code of Ethics? Via that code, members commit to basic standards of professionalism, including conducting business, quote, with truth, fairness, and responsibility to all customers, suppliers, associations, and TIA, end quote. Fairness is not precisely defined, but an ethics committee uh, there is ultimately responsible for adjudicating complaints, as I noted. Truth, on the other hand, can be a somewhat objective thing, can it? You might remember the code the next time an agent tells you that's all he's got in the load, I might imagine. You can find a copy of TIA's Code of Ethics and its associated complaint form via the post on Overdrive that houses this podcast. Visit overdriveonline.com slash channel19 to find it. Interestingly enough, non-TIA members, including owner-operators, can and sometimes do file complaints against members. As noted, 
Complaints are reviewed by the association's ethics committee with potential to hold a member to account. That's happened before, as Berman says. And there have been instances throughout the life of the TIA where there have been complaints made against a broker and they're removed from the association. So right. what's that really mean? Well, you, you know, it's just like if you're going to hire a contractor to do work in your home, you're going to call somebody that maybe you've never met and you're going to pretty much give them the keys to your home to do whatever. Maybe they're going to do drywall work, electrical or plumbing. And it's, you know, it's based on a promise, just like truck brokering is with a carrier. You want to do some quick background checks on who you're doing business with? Sure. Well, if you start with somebody that you know is already accredited because they're a member of a organization, and listen, 1,800 members out of 20,000 is not a huge organization. That's a a small fraction of uh, all the brokers, yeah. Yeah, but we definitely have a presence, and we we also have a presence in Washington, which which counts, and especially during times like this where carriers and brokers alike are pointing fingers at each other. And this is nothing new. This has been going on since the 70s. Nothing's changed. It's always, you know, it's just like inside of companies where operations and sales never get along. Brokers and carriers seldom get along. Because one reason or another, and it usually has everything to do with the people. It usually doesn't have anything to do with uh, the the plan of the business. It usually has to do with people, they get aggravated, they had a bad day, they fought with their wife before they came to work. You know, there are those things where you pick up the phone, like I said, you're having fast conversations on the telephone, so everything you say and how you said it is being perceived as a truth to somebody when, in fact, maybe you didn't actually mean to say it that way, yes, but sir. it came out that way and you rub somebody the wrong way to cause doubt in their mind. But this way, if, if you go to an accredited organization to start with, and listen, I'm not saying that everybody that has that TIA patch is a great company. And I'm not saying everybody that's associated with TIA is a great person to do business with because there's bad people everywhere. Perhaps to Berman's point, some of you will recall a shipper's step deck load that I wrote about in early May on the Channel 19 blog. That'd be May 8th to be exact if you want to go look for it. One week into the owner-operator-led protests on Constitution Avenue in D.C. that would extend then for another two weeks after that. Anyway, the load was posted by a broker with an offer rate that took about 40% off the price the shipper was paying. Granted, it was just an offer, a test of the market, if you will, but odds are it got covered at a rate pretty close to that if one of the shipper's asset carrier partners didn't get to it first. The broker fishing for 40% on the load? Yep, TIA member, for what that's worth. You know, but at least it's a starting point. And I, I, I would tell your readers that if you, if, if you spend, some, spend some time on the telephone 
and start asking questions about a broker. Let them know where you are. Let them know what you need to make and see if you can put some pieces of a puzzle together and come up with a more dynamic operating plan than going from load board to load board, load to load, and not really knowing. You know, a lot of these guys will pick up a load. They have no idea what they're doing after they deliver the load. They have a thought of what they'd like to do. They may may have seen a return load that may work for them. Maybe they book it, maybe they don't. But what are they going to do next week? And how many calls are they going to make next week? How many broker agreements are they going to fill out every week? You know, a lot of it has just, you know, it's turned into so much business administration when you should be more concerned about, you know, how's my fuel economy? Where am I getting the best deal of fuel? Where can I get uh, safe food? Where can I go to park my truck that's safe? You know, there's all those other things that happen uh, between the time you pick up a load and deliver a load than to worry about how much is this guy going to pay me? And then they're going to ask for transparency. Berman's invocation of transparency got us back to what uh, prompted our conversation to begin with, the 49 Code of Federal Regulations 371.3 rules that that offers carriers a right to review the record of any broker transaction, including brokerage fees and what the shipper paid for the load. That rule, the potential for its enforcement outside of carrier, broker, and shipper contracts, played a big part in May's protest action by truckers in D.C. And the existence of contract language requiring carriers to sign away the right to review continues for many to feel like a huge red flag that, basically, brokers have something to hide. Berman's East Coast Company's uh, contracts with carriers don't utilize such language. It's explained by other brokers as as the way that uh, the business chooses to deal with non-disclosure requirements handed down to them from their shipper customers. Berman and company deal with those shipper demands too, he says. East Coast requires an in-person review for transparency rather than offering any electronic disclosure. OOIDA has asked Congress to include an automatic electronic required disclosure to the carrier as a provision in the next COVID-19 economic relief bill that's been in talks for now for weeks. For Berman, though, that in-person review he describes as basically their way of maintaining some measure of control of that information and a good faith effort not to violate their contracts with customers while also not violating federal regulations guaranteeing a carrier's right to review the record. Here's the thing, though. Asked him how often carriers actually ask for a review of the record? Not very often was the answer, essentially. But this was his first response. Interestingly enough, no one's ever asked us. I'll take that back. I, I would say probably in the last 10 years, we've had three carriers ask us. Yeah. But that's not, that's almost never. I mean, that's not a lot of requests. I don't have a problem sharing that information. Come to our office and we'll share it with you. My question is, is the, you know, the, the, what my understanding, um, OIDA is asking for is they're asking within 48 hours after delivery that they provide transparency. And my question is, all right, so, Let's start at the beginning. 
Okay, let's start in a in a very productive time of year. Let's go to September. September is usually very productive for everybody. There's there's um, there's usually more freight than there is truck capacity. Rates usually start to escalate sometime around September. So it's a pretty good. The market conditions are pretty good for carriers in September. So let's take a look at September. So let's say I usually pay you $1,500 for a specific lane. And you go, $1,500, it's going to cost me $800 to do that. So, okay, I'll do it for $1,500. Now you delivered it and you say 371.3, what's the number? Yeah. And I say, well, I paid you 1500 and my um, shipper paid me 2200 So I, I, I made $700. Right. Then what? I mean, right. what are you going to do with that information? You, you already made the choice to pull the load because you thought it was a profitable load for you. So I made $700. Maybe you made $700 because it only cost you $800 to do it. So we both yeah. made money. So is that a bad thing? Now let's go to November. Now things have changed. Now demand on the market is at its almost peak. Let's take two weeks before Thanksgiving. So now my shipper is still paying me 2400 but now because demand's so high, now I've got to pay you 2900 because there's no capacity, and everybody knows it. Yeah. So now I'm losing $500. So you deliver the load and goes to 371.3, and I go, okay, I paid you 24 I mean, I paid you 29 and I still got paid 24 what are you going to do with that? I mean, I, I, I'm really not sure where what? this is going. I mean, are we going to get to the point where we go into a supermarket and say, you know, you charged me $15 for paper towel. How much do you pay for the paper towel? You know, most supermarkets uh, pay 30% what they charge you at the cash register as an average. Some things less, some things more. You know, you go to the deli counter, it's $8 for a half a pound. They probably paid two fifty for it, for a pound, and they're charging you $8 for half a pound. Are you going to go into a restaurant and ask them the same thing? Restaurants usually, their goal is to operate at a 30% food cost. So if they're charging you $1.20, they probably it probably cost of 40 cents. So, I mean, where's this all going to go? I mean, to what end? Nobody is, it, you know, there isn't anybody getting coerced to take any of the freight. And I would tell you that if somebody turns down the same lane enough, someone's going to increase the rate. So the guy that decides to take it if truck A decides he's going to take it and truck B 
can't take it because he thinks the lane's too cheap, then who wins and who loses? I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't really understand to what end this is supposed to serve for anybody. We take care of our carriers, carriers that have uh, stuck with us. We're paying them the same rate today that we pay them in January, February, March, and April. Period. End of story. Now, there's a lot of brokers that aren't. I mean, obviously, we've all seen the things on the internet that, you know, they paid a truck 800 and they billed 2400. So, you know, that's yeah. how they want to run their business, then that's the way they run their business. I think what the, the 371.3, I mean, if it's there for anything, it seems to me to be there or be useful in the situations like that where, you know, the one thing that, that is always repeated to me over and over again by uh, owner-operators that, you know, you know, I have to negotiate a load with somebody that they don't uh, know at all, you know, on a, on a semi-regular basis, uh, who, you know, it's always, that's all we've got in the load. Uh, we can't go any higher than that. That's, that's it, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, something happens along the way and it turns out that they basically, they find out what the shipper has paid for this. And, and in those cases, like that 371.3 is there to help them, you know, if it said they didn't find out what the ship paid for it by happenstance, to help them in situations where they have uh, doubt about uh, the person that they're dealing with, to know not to go back there. Uh, people can kind of do that. Uh, if you have doubt, you probably shouldn't go back, period. Right? Like, I mean, you, you, may, right. you may not need that regulation to, to do that, but nonetheless, I think that's kind of, you know, it's, it's balancing the power of, you know, a one, one guy with one truck versus, uh, in some cases, you know, giant conglomerates. Uh, uh, in, in some cases, in freight brokers would be one person in, a, you know, in an office with a phone. But in, in a lot of cases, in other cases, it's big, you know, big companies with uh, lots of muscle. Frankly, I, I'll tell you, if I owned a truck again, I would not deal with any of these billion-dollar companies because I don't think the transaction matters at all. And that's just yeah. me. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying to do business with one guy over another guy, but I, I think if you find a respectable business that's large enough to pay you quickly, you know, also don't forget, you know, there's, there's carriers that we do pay uh, when they deliver. Right. So say they're uh, out on the truck for four or five days and they deliver the load. We pay them uh, because of COVID right now. We're not charging anybody comp check fees. If you want okay, automatic cool. deposit into your account, we're not charging anybody for any of that nonsense right now. However, with all that being said, you know, we're paying you. We don't get paid from our customers in some, at, you know, worst case scenario, 60 days. Right. Average is 30 to 45 days. So we're floating millions of dollars every week 
to pay the trucks. Right. You know, that's a lot of liability, too. For that very reason, you'll find some brokers factoring their receivables just as carriers do to speed up payment. For a fee, of course. Berman personally looks unfavorably on factoring as a general rule, and he advises anyone getting into business as an owner-operator to think hard about every aspect of what would be necessary to operate. And cash reserves at startup is a big part of that. If you're going to get into the business and buy a truck, there's... There's many considerations you have to have. Number one is just starting. So they just changed some of the, of the rules where, uh, because they had expired all the six-digit MC numbers, they right. decided they were going to go back to the beginning, and any of the MCs that were not being used, they were going to start assigning those. And then that was overturned. Now they're doing seven-digit MC numbers. So let's say you had your MC for a month. You're going to have a difficult time finding a load on the spot market. There aren't a lot of brokers that are going to load you from a phone call conversation because you have no history. You have no scores in Safer Stat or Carrier 411. Uh, you, um, you know, you, you haven't operated long enough to be considered credible. I mean, sometimes you're better off with a guy that has been in business for a year that has just barely passable scores than you do with a guy that may have newer equipment that's only been in business for a month. So you know, you have to have a strategy when you come into this market of what exactly you're going to do and why are you doing this? You know, some guys are glamorized by their trucks. So they put heavy investments into their truck with all the creature comforts, with all the chrome. And I dig all that stuff too. There's nothing nicer mm -hmm. than a big chromed out long hood truck. Some big 379 with a stainless steel trailer. I mean, it looks great. But, you know, at the same time, at what cost are, are, are you uh, operating your business for? We talked about costs and competitiveness a bit in part one of this two-parter with Berman. And as promised, we got a cost-per-mile poll going on OverdriveOnline.com. Good news is that 90% of respondents so far have been able to give a solid answer. Just 9% as of Wednesday morning reported not even knowing the number. Possibly bad news? There's a huge range. And that uh, partly reflective of the varying costs of different types of freight operations and the expense of different types of equipment. But also perhaps re reflective of the kinds of things that an owner-operator can control to reduce costs. Most fall within the dollar to dollar seventy-five range. That's not including the cost to pay yourself and or a driver in this case. Plenty do, however, report a cost per mile below a dollar. Big advantage when it comes to profit. And what is more important at that point? Is it more important to have that glamorous truck or is it more important to have an income to be stable when things are slow in January, February, and March that you can continue to push forward when rates Listen, rates are never the same. You know, if you look at rates year after year after year, traditionally, they go up. 
But while they go up, they're also going, they're hitting peaks and valleys, you know, rates yeah. ebb and flows like the ocean. So you have to, you have to have a business plan that's going to support that. And the best way to do that is if, if you've been a company driver where a lot of these guys come from and decide to go buy a truck, you can't just be concentrating on load boards. You need to be concentrating on relationship with an accredited broker and put the time into calling brokers and talking to the right people. If you talk to a dispatcher at a brokerage company, you're probably not going to get what you want to hear. You're yeah. going to hear some lanes and rates. You want to talk to somebody that is in operations and let them know how serious you are about finding that niche in their business that you that you could fill and be profitable week after week. And it may take four brokers to put that package together, but they guys need to spend the time to do that because just going and relying on the load board and a spot rate is going to put you in a situation. Listen, this COVID when it started in March, now I'm in Florida, right? So it was just like hurricane season. When FEMA starts opening their checkbook and paying outrageous rates, I mean, they're paying five, $6,000 to go 800 miles where, you know, an average may be uh, $2,000. Right. You know, when there's no capacity for everything that all the consumers look for every day, and there's a there's a national emergency where FEMA is buying capacity to move generators, to move roofing materials, two by fours, uh, food, clothing. Owner operators many times over enjoy that benefit, but when the hurricane's over, then what do you do? You know, while I was doing running 800 miles, they were paying me four or $5,000 for that lane. Now you want to pay me $2,000. Is that fair? You know, it's all cyclical and seasonal. You, you have to be prepared in this business for the good times and the bad times. There isn't anything easy about any of this. There isn't anything easy about being behind the wheel of a truck there isn't anything easy about trying to maintain proper hours of service. There isn't anything easy about maintaining your equipment, but they're all things that a guy that decides to go buy one truck or five trucks has to do. And on top of that, you know, he's, he has to put his foot in that sales water and make yeah. some connections. And if you don't do it with shippers, do it with some smaller brokers where you can find some consistency and figure out based on what you think your cost is going to be, how much profit's in there, and if you can do it. There may be times you're going to say, you know what, I just can't afford to do that. How was it that my colleague and longtime former owner-operator Gary Bucks put it? 
Don't forget the value of your right of refusal. That's your line in the sand. Quote, unquote. Put another way, yeah. You don't have to take a rate. And justifying your own rates in your co- with your cost needs, including in those cases uh, what you're going to pay yourself and the business, could go a long way toward having fruitful conversations with brokers like Berman that could lead to regular freight opportunities. Again, though, you'll need to get beyond the guy that you call about a single load with any company, as Berman emphasized. He's happy to field calls from any of you himself, he says. Advertisement alert here of a fashion, though I do know he's coming from a genuine place. Absolutely. I'm at East Coast Transport, and any of your listeners or subscribers are more than welcome to call me and have a discussion about their business, about their equipment, about the area that they want to run based on maybe where they need to run. Right. You know, the other thing is, you know, owner operators should look at what's in the used truck market today. You know, Celadon is going to have thousands of trucks for sale and they're all going to auction. There's a couple big companies that just went bankrupt. Unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of trucks at good pricing right now on the used truck market. And it'd be a good idea for guys that have trucks that are older than seven years old to take a look because it's going to continue to get more difficult to find freight if you have an older truck. It just will. Especially anything that's time and temperature related. We have product that we move that's date stamped. So if the, if our shippers telling their customer, you know, we're, we're giving you 45 days on this product. Well, we already ate up seven days in transit. So now they have less than 45 days. Now a truck breaks down and maybe he's down for three days. So, you you know, obviously the likelihood of breaking down an older truck is more likely than a new truck. Although, you know, you can still break down in a new truck. I mean, I feel bad. Hours of service today is so out of control with the government. And I hope some of the changes, the reforms they've made helps the driver time will tell on that front until next time stay proud there